Okay. Uh, ask your question again, Robert. So I've heard it said that if you understand Paticca Samapada, you understand the entirety of the Dhamma. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it goes back to two different statements that I've heard that the Buddha has made. One is the statement of uh, he who sees me sees the Dhamma and he who sees the Dhamma sees me. Now, he was doing that in respect to that some students uh, were overly attached to him as a teacher. Rather than just an example of, of what to do, they wanted him to do it for them. OK, so that's the first part of it. Now, the second part of it is, is that uh, following along, he who sees Paticca Samuppada sees the Dhamma. And he who sees the Dhamma sees Paticca Samuppada. OK, now what that means is, is that the Dhamma actually is the ability to see what's going on. All right, that's what the teaching of the Dhamma really is. The Dhamma is actually a, 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 um, a good definition of the word Dhamma would be the word thing, T-H-I-N-G. Okay, so when we say Dhammakaya or the full body of Dhamma, we're talking about everything. Okay, and then when we're talking about uh, uh, Dhamma in the sense of uh, the location, or loka. You see, here's something that's very interesting. We use the word location and we know what it means. And that's actually the word that it was used in the Pali. Of being above where you are or being above what in English we talk about being above the world or being above your world. But the point is, is that it's a bad translation to translate loka into the word world. Isn't that in why would they do that? Why if the word is location, why did and that's what the Buddha was talking about. Your location or where you are is your world. Anything that is not in your location or is not capable of coming into your senses is only a thought in your own mind. It's a concept. For instance, right now, none of the four of us are are in Chicago. Therefore, when I use the word Chicago, that's merely a concept. And so when you see the news and some, you know, the, some tower fell over in, in Chicago or something like that, that's just a concept. It's not your world. And so this is what we mean then about the Dhamma is the world in which you live because it's part of your sensory input. And so you could then say, well, what about Buddha Dhamma? Well, the answer to that is you could say that's the Buddha's thing. That's all it means. Buddha Dhamma means the Buddha's thing or the awakened thing or look at the way things really are because you're awake. So when we're actually awake to whatever thing or, or whatever the thing is in the moment, is the thing that needs to be paid attention to, which we could also in English use as your object of meditation. Is whatever thing it is, there it is, pay attention. 
Look at what you're doing. This is in your world. Don't conceptualize into outer space or out of this world, whether that out of this world is the next town over or the next country over or the next planet over or the next plane of existence over. It doesn't matter where over it is. It's not here and it's not right now. And therefore, it does not exist except as a concept in your mind. And so when people talk about heavens and hells and rebirth and reincarnation, those are all just merely concepts and cannot be anything other than that because we never get to that world. And when we are, that means that now we are in this location. But we're not. But we, there's no reason to think of this location when we're actually in this location and that location doesn't exist except as a concept in the mind here. All right, Robert. So what are your thoughts on near-death experiences and people reporting, let's, you know, let's the white Let's finish light. this one first. Let's finish this one first. Let's not go off into never-never land. We just talked about going off into never-never land. <laughs> you aren't wanting to go off into never-never land. <laughs> let's not go there. Let's stay here where things are happening. And what is happening is the processes of the mind. But that's the thing that we begin to take an object of and begin to look at. What is the physical body? This is step three of Anapanasati, of the breathing and the watching of the body, as well as the calming of the body down. And then the next is, in the, in the Vedana, is to be able to start feeling the way that you want to feel, feel some sukha. What is sukha? It's the exact opposite of dukkha, which means instead of feeling bad, you start to feeling good. And then you can begin to manage those feelings so that you can go into a state of elating all the way down to satisfied, all the way down to, wow, completely relaxed. And that's all mental. And we recognize that that happens because of conditionings that, in fact, that's what steps uh, seven and eight of the Anapanasati are is actually pointing out Paticca Samapada. Look at how these things are related. Look at how the mind affects the feelings. And we've just been talking about exactly how the mind affects the feelings because the mind creates an object inside that has sometimes nothing or very little to do with what's happening on, on the outside. The actual input gets mixed in with Sankara or our memory base so that what we come up with is sometimes completely different. Than what's actually out there. So an example of that would be that a meeting has got 10 or 20 people in it and it's also got a camera. Everybody comes out of that meeting and everybody's got their own version and view of what happened in that meeting and no one knows exactly what that camera recorded. The camera got it right and accurately and everybody else got messed up in perception. So that they didn't remember what happened in that meeting the way that anybody else remembers what happened in that meeting. That some guy remembers the, the tension between person A and B, and person X doesn't even know that A and B know each other. And so he doesn't tech, pick up on that agitation between them. See, so there's a whole lot of stuff that uh, gets messed up with perception. And so when we begin to see, getting back to Robert's original question, of by being able to see how the mind works and see the various things in the mind, that's actually what the teaching of the Buddha is all about, because most of the things in the world are really not in the world or in one's mind. 
that is all mentally oriented and we can see the process of how all of that stuff gets created, that means that we can choose how we're going to create stuff. And by being able to create it correctly, that means it can live a very happy, useful, wholesome life. And if we keep tripping on the same things over and over again, we keep falling into the same mud over and over again and start to blame that root that we tripped over rather than seeing that root. And beginning to, uh, let us say, polish it off. So that's how the Pitita Samapada is related to Dhamma and how the Buddha is related to it. That Buddha is the example of the Dhamma and of the Pitita Samapada for us all to figure that out. And when we do, the outcome is, is that you are also awake. You can see what's going on. Why are you awake? Because you're looking. Why are you looking? It's because you're remembering to look. And you're paying attention. And that's what the word Buddha means. It means being awake. Looking at what's going on. It doesn't mean that you're a master or a miracle worker. It doesn't mean you can fly through the air. It doesn't mean that you can go from this location to that location. All it means is if you're awake. You're paying attention. You're seeing what's going on. And if you get close to death and you're able to do that, then in fact, everybody has near-death experiences on a regular basis. It's called sleep. And you lose consciousness. You're dead. They even call it dead to the world. <laughs> yes, Robert. So I was just looking at a graph of the Paticca Samapada. So sorry if you guys covered this before, but I noticed that um, that a name and form leads to the six sense spheres. Wouldn't it be the other way around that first there's sensation? No, no. name and form is a reference to uh, perception. And sometimes there's another Pali word for that, which is sanya. So that perception and then the salayatana by the way you've just got bad translations <laughs> that's all sure. the salayatana is the result of perception so cognization is perception and that which is cognized is cognized through cognization okay one is the process, the other is the result. The process is name and form. The result is what the name, the form, turned into the name. So Nama Rupa means you're turning the actual image or the form or the reality, the Rupa is the real thing, into a name inside the mind, an understanding of it, a handle for it. Name and form is perception. And that name that you came up with, the Salayatana. So you could say that you have perception, uh, excuse me, uh, consciousness, which is actually seeing the form. And then you change it from a form to a name in the process of Nama Rupa, and then you come up with the Salayatana, 
which is the name. That's it. They're not backwards. Got it. So um, as far as FASA goes, sensory contact stimulation, that then leads to Vedana, right? So um, Ve where Ve Vedana. Vedana. So where is the process of thought? Is thought considered part of FASA? The thought is the salyatana. That's the thought or the concept or that which was perceived. So, um, so salyatana. Not the gift is given, but the gift you received. So if salyatana comes before FASA, which is sensory contact stimulation. Wouldn't it be that sensation comes first and then thought? You think about the sensation? Absolutely not, Robert. No. That in this sequence we're talking about, where do your feelings come from? Let us say that two people are standing on the street corner and they see a third person coming down the street on the other side of the street. How that person is dressed, the clothing that they're wearing, impacts these two people on this side of the street differently. Why? Because of the fact that it wasn't the actual clothing that they're seeing in this moment. It's that they're digging through their past and recognize, oh, I have seen that clothing before, and this is how I felt about it before, so this is how I'm going to feel about that clothing now. That's the perception process. And then we come up with the clothing that's added to it our knowledge of what that clothing is. And that's the salyatana. That's the concept that we've got now. I see that with my eye, but I've got this concept or this name for it now. And that's what I react to. I don't react to the actual thing out there. I'm reacting to what I made of it. Right. So what okay, so you can say then is this is the way of looking at it is, is that the package is sent by the producer. The sending of the package, that package as it was wrapped up, was what they sent. That was the consciousness. Okay. The transportation messed that thing up. Perhaps it was a uh, uh, a rough ride or a rough handling or whatever. And so the package that you opened when you when you got it home is not what was sent has been damaged in the process or in the transport. Okay, that transportation is what you mean by perception. And what you receive then is what you're going to react to, not what was sent. Right, and so my understanding was that first you perceive something and then you have a thought about it and then you have a feeling. But okay. it's well, you have a feeling it depends upon the thought, how it contacted you. Right. So the, if a thought contacts you in one way, then it, then the feeling is going to be uh, joy, sadness, anger, or whatever feeling in the sense of I like it, I don't like it. Right. So right. that is what uh, impacts us. And the impact is bringing up a feeling. So the result of the internal image that we've made impacts us. That's the result of what we've done. That impacts us, and we have feelings about it. 
In the Pali, this is the Satyatana, the Pasa, the contact, and the Vedana. Right. Okay. Now, now one of the ways that you can think of it is, is that uh, a sensation of the body is sensory input. One thing uh, can be, let us say that uh, two situations happen. One person is standing there and another person brushes by in a similar situation where a person is standing there and uh, another one brushes by. In the first case, the brush meant nothing to him. It was the same brush as the second one. But in the second uh, one, that brush, that touch ticked him off. How dare you touch me? Okay, so this is the touching that we're talking about, that contact. So that sensation was sensory input. But what he did with it was the touch that came into the mind was, how dare you touch me? And the other one, oh, there's nothing to it. One of them had a memory of getting touched and didn't like it or something like that. Okay, so the, the actual brushing aside or getting touched, the sensory input, of the touch itself is not the result. The result is what we did with that touch. And that's what impacted us to bring liking or not liking up. Go, Robert. Sure. So so the method that you teach of noticing, you know, the unwholesome reaction and replacing it with wholesome um, seems like, you know, the, the end goal is to have done this so many times that you have the wholesome to begin with. So the thoughts are already positive before you have the perception. Yeah, before you came on, we talked about hamburgers and sewers, which is exactly what you're talking about here, exactly, that we keep putting wholesome stuff into our memory base. And that means that when we perceive, we're going to get the easy stuff off the top rather than having dig all the way down to the sewer. Right. Exactly. But we got to layer that entire sewer with dozens and dozens of layers of hamburgers to make sure that we don't have to go all the way to the sewers, that we can always just grab hamburgers off the top of that sewer. Right. So when Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa uses the phrase, you know, wisdom at the point of contact, mm -hmm. not such that one is changing unwholesome to wholesome at the point of contact, because then it's not the point of contact anymore is that they've changed it so many times that it's automatically wisdom without Right, it. yes, okay, we can have it like that. Uh, the, uh, the automatic is the actual, the, um, the process of going into the uh, memory bank, but now we're able to pull up some recent really delicious good memories rather than the old stuff that's painful. And yet somehow or another, when the mind wanders away, why does it always wander into the sewer part of the mind? Because of unresolved, unfinished business, that's why. And so yeah. we have to earn, we have to learn to leave unfinished business unfinished. Right. Because if we want to finish unfinished business, we may never be able to finish unfinished business. It's only unfinished in our own mind. It may be finished completely with somebody else's mind, and he doesn't want to hear it. So. How can we come to that point of, never mind, start again. Never mind how I feel right now. Let's reprocess this and put some juicy in there and come up with a better salyatana that impacts our feelings better. 
In other words, we can condition it right in that side. It's not that it has to go from this to this to this to this to this and all of that order. But it wisdom at the point of contact means that instead of feeling bad ignorantly because we've got wisdom, we can reprocess that and say, wait a minute, I can add some juice to this perception and come up with a brand new salyatana. An example of that would be someone who is on a diet and they feel hungry. Most of the time when we feel hungry, the hunger is, oh, no, I've got to go eat. But a wise person who is on a diet says, oh, oh no, I know what hunger is. That's a sign of ketosis. I'm actually losing weight while I'm hungry. Yippee, I feel really good because I'm hungry. Or there is a hunger feeling there, but I am not the feeling of hunger. I am the joy of being able to conquer the hunger and say, never mind. I'm okay, even if I'm hungry. So that's the way of looking at Paticca Samuppada in the sense of it's a very active way of looking how the mind operates. And we've got a choice basically anywhere along there. We can make the choice at the point of contact. Oh, there's nothing to it. That didn't impact me at all. Or the other one is to change the what is perceived by putting new data in it. Another one is simply don't look at the hunger. Don't be conscious of it. Go off and do something else. Ignore the hunger. Then that means that we're making choices right there at the point of consciousness. So we have choices all along. We can change it from one to another, from one to another. When? When we remember. Whatever part of the cycle we're in, when we wake up to that, we can say, wait a minute, I can make a change here too. And the skill level then would be starting way at the end of it because we're so slow. And as we gain skills, we begin to back up and get closer and closer up right up to the point of perception. And then how perception and consciousness work together. And when we're looking at how perception and consciousness work together, that's what's referred to as fourth jhana. To recognize that when we bring perception to an end, we bring those feelings to an end. When we just watch the show and just enjoy the show, which is raw consciousness, we don't have to do the perception of trying to figure out who done it. We can just enjoy the show. Yes, Robert. Yeah, could you uh, walk us through Suda 111, speaking of Jhanas? Okay, well, this... Uh, <laughs> Robert, it sounds like we programmed this in advance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard it come up in a podcast today, and I remember you asked me to read it once, and I read it about a year ago, or six, eight months ago, kind of uh -huh. a while, months ago. And we never really talked about it after I read it. I kind of told you, oh, I read it, and then we kind of moved on. So I thought when I heard it mentioned today, oh, you know, it'd be fun to ask Damarado to go into that in more detail. Okay, well, let's do that in a whole different broadcast because that's a, uh, an important, uh, long-winded kind of thing. Okay, cool. Uh, all right. So do you have any particular questions about it right now? We can go into a little bit of. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I know you you teach that first jhana is really, you know, the primary jhana, and that the rest are kind of ancillary. But, you know, the Buddha, you know, detailed these other seven jhanas. No, uh, he didn't. Didn't do it. So, so, yeah, so what do you see as the purpose of these other jhanas? Are they just... Uh, Natural occurrences of wholesomeness. Mm. That the first jhana is actually all of the work needs to be done, and for some people it's easier to do than others. And it has various characteristics. And when all of the characteristics of first jhana are there, that gathering of the characteristics or gathering of the aggregates or gathering of the various parts together is the samadhi. And that samadhi then, with all of those things, that's what we mean by integration or bringing together is the samadhi. And when we have all of those five things, then we can begin to play with each one of them in turn. That's the important point about that uh, that particular uh, sutta is, is that once we gained first jhana, then we play with various pieces and portions of it. And as we're playing with various pieces and portions of it, by playing with that thing, that defines that particular jhana state. In other words, when we're really, really playing with pity, which means we're really, really involved with feeling so good that we don't even have to talk ourselves into feeling this good anymore. We just, wow, this feels so good. Then that we're actually in the second jhana because that's what we're paying attention to is how good we feel. Okay. And then the third jhana would, how good do we feel because we feel completely satisfied? Oh, wow, this is just so, oh. And that would be the third jhana. So, in fact, you could say that, metaphorically speaking, breathing is the first jhana, and the second jhana is a long, good, deep in-breath, and the third jhana is a long, deep out-breath, and the fourth jhana is the gap between the out-breath and the in-breath, when there's no breath. Now, a lot of people in the West have the idea that years and years of work and research to get to first jhana, and then years and work and research to get to second jhana, and then years of work to get to third jhana, and then years of work to get to fourth jhana. Have you gotten that concept before? Have you seen that? Every one of these are major milestones, okay? But rather a way of looking at it is, is that all you have to do on vacation of the first jhana is to get yourself into Disneyland. And once you're in Disneyland, now you can go on the roller coaster, you can go on the ride, you can go on the, uh, you can go to lunch, you can do whatever you want to within Disneyland. And these are the higher jhanas. <laughs> the big work is getting yourself into Disneyland. Once you're there, you start paying attention to what you've got. And so the jhanas are not that much work, but it's really, really things called attainments that Western mind is looking for. So I've got to attain this, and I've got to attain that. I've got to get attainment of this fetter, and that fetter, and the next fetter. I've got to get attainment of this jhana, and the next jhana, and I've got to get rid of the, uh, and, and attain the sotapan, and then the sotagama, and then the anagama. No, man, these are all... <laughs> Uh, old ancient descriptions of states of mind that people knew all about. 
But because as the language is foreign and the concepts are foreign, we don't understand that these are normal ways of the human mind working. And when it's working correctly, you feel really good. And when your mind's not working correctly, you feel wrecked. You feel bad. And that every human being is a combination of one or the other, up and down. Sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. And now we're saying you start watching this process and see what's going on because you've got choices here. You don't have to have the ups and downs based upon the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. If you know how to dance, let the slings and arrows come because you know how to dance around them. And so this is the whole teaching of it's not that these jhanas are special. It's look at what you're paying attention to. Are you going to pay attention to pity? You're going to pay attention to sukha? Are you going to pay attention to the equanimity that comes even more soft than the, than the sukha? Complete relaxation. Then from that state, when you're completely relaxed, the mind is really sharp and really focused. So you can begin to see how the feelings arise based upon this earlier stuff that's in the early parts of Paticca Samapada. We're really quick so that we can see this relationship between consciousness and perception. And what is it that's really being looked at and what is it that I imagine it to be? And that imagination process is the perception that we need to start working on because when we can bring that perception to a stop, we bring the feelings to a stop, and that's the equanimity. So when you're looking at equanimity, you're actually looking at lack of feelings. And when you're looking at lack of feelings, that means you're looking at lack of salayatana because there's nothing there to impact you. And the reason for it is because there's nothing there because you're not doing a lot of perceiving. You're just letting input be input. That's that sequence that they're talking about in that sutta number 111. Nothing to it. <laughs> That's so funny. There's really nothing to it. All we have to do is look at it. We can see for sure. Oh, this is only here because of the cause and conditions. Other than that, there's nothing to it. Let me go look at the cause and then conditions of this thing. And then we see that, oh, there's nothing to that because they were caused and conditioned by this other stuff. And when we get down to where we're not causing and conditioning anything, then we're just enjoying the show, just in sensory input. So this would be the, uh, the, the, the fourth jhanas in action rather than uh, sitting in the closet or in a <laughs> a cave or a meditation hall or a prison cell or whatever it is that goes into deep isolation like that in order to get to these states when you can just simply get yourself into a good state and then pass in and out of this fourth jhana. Go take a look at it. See what's there. So what if you can't maintain it? You can at least maintain the first jhana. That's what the Buddha recommends. He does not say to quickly establish and then maintain the fourth jhana as a skill, but he does say that about the first jhana. To be able to get into that state of unification, get into that state so you can see what's going on, and then look at what's going on, because everything that you're looking at is all wholesome. If you start looking at what's going on before you've read the mind of the unwholesome thoughts, then all you've got to look at is unwholesome things, and that's called 
Vipassana meditation. He's looking at the unwholesome. To where the Buddhist practice is no less so out the unwholesome unless then be uh, observant and aware of what's wholesome. Or another way of saying it is, is that as we're observing these states of Petitra Samuppada, we actually stop it right there. Can you stop it at the point of uh, grasping and clinging? Or at the state of need, can you see that I need it and say, okay, I need it, but I'm, I'm satisfied. Or can you back up and further than that and say, yes, I, I want it, but I don't need it and I'm satisfied. Then you can back it up one further and say, oh, I like it. And I'm satisfied and I don't want it. And then you can back, back it up even further than that and see, oh, look at what's contacting me. I see that contact. I feel moved to feel. And then we look up a little bit closer, a little bit more inspection. They say, oh, this is what contacted me. My perception uh, or my, uh, the thing that I perceived with my perception. And then we look at how do I perceive this stuff? And then we can get all the way down to how consciousness and perception work together. And all of these things are marching down from the first jhana there at the point of contact, down to second jhana looking at the salayatana and recognizing that you have control over it. In other words, the mind is now quiet. But there's still concepts, there's still percept things that are perceived in there. And so you quieten that down even more so you can get right down to quietening down the perception itself. And this is actually quite a lot of fun. But if you see it as work to do and an accomplishment, then it's not going to be so much fun, it's going to be hard work. Up to you. <laughs> <laughs> There's really nothing to it, guys. <laughs> yes, Robert. So I heard a pretty absurd thing on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> one of the guests said that that he had known of people that had achieved Sotopan that didn't have any sila. And I thought that was very absurd because the whole point of the the path is sila, you know, in some sense, right? So how yes. could you possibly achieve Sotopan without having Sila? That just doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like you're, you're just choosing. And the argument he gave was that, um, oh, well, he, he had the attainments of Sotopan. You know, he had reached the jhana states and this and that. Not the, the guy who was talking, but people that he had known. And so therefore they had it. But I think uh -huh. that's a really silly argument that you could achieve that without Sila. Well, it depends upon whether uh, the light switch of non-soda pond and the light switch is thrown to soda pond, and it's a special kind of light switch that once it's turned on, it never goes back off again. Hmm. That's the kind of soda pond that this guy is referring to, and he's saying that it went on at some event. Okay, but if you understand it correctly, sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. Thanks. That <laughs> uh, in fact, you're you're actually reminding me of a um, and a sequence of events or conversations that I had with Achan Po about the soda pot. 
And on one occasion that he told me uh, what he said made me feel really, really little and low. Because what he was pointing out is, is that it's not a permanent. What? Yeah, he was he was pointing out that this up and down is not a permanent thing, but it's something that you get and then you lose it and you get it again and you lose it and you start practicing, et cetera, like that. It, it, um, that in fact, rock climbers have to have ropes because they slip and fall often, right? And they need those safety nets. They're not ever going to learn how to rock climb if they never had a safety net. They would have fallen. Okay, so how can we think of soda pine as this mountain that we've got to climb and there is no safety net and there's no ropes. You either got it or you don't. And once you got it, you've always got it. As soon as you can climb one rock, that means you can climb every rock in existence. That's not true. Sometimes you can climb this rock. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can climb this rock, but you can't climb the next. So that whole idea of that it's an attainment or it's a state that is permanent or everlasting is incorrect. What you can think of it is, is that in this moment, and perhaps because of the attitude change for a long period of time, he's in soda pond, but he's not going to be in soda pond every minute. Sometimes he's asleep. What is a soda pond when it's asleep? I mean, it's just a human being that's asleep. There's no distinction there. So at one point in time, somebody could have been soda pond. In fact, during that experience of the attainment of soda pond, obviously in that point of time, his sealer was perfect. He wasn't hitting anybody. He wasn't punching anybody. He wasn't killing anybody. He wasn't stealing anything. He wasn't molesting any of the women or the other guys or anything like that. He was sitting there enjoying his, uh, his experience. But that didn't mean that experience is going to carry over. The only thing that's going to carry over are the skills of remembering to remember, to wake up. To go back there and do it again and again and again and again. That's what builds up the soda pond, not a particular experience. And that, in fact, we can say that the uh, the experience of the soda pond um, is also not just tied with sila, but it's also tied with the first three fetters. So that the actual definition of Sotapan is one who has mastered these first three fetters, not someone who had a, uh, an outstanding fit. And so the first fetter we can say then is um, the, the fetter of the self of grasping and clinging after eyes and me's and minds and wanting things. The second fetter is our association with the world, the rights, rules, rituals, and way things are supposed to be. Grasping and clinging after the things that I want from the world in order to make me better off. So the first and the second fetter are deeply interrelated. And when you recognize the second fetter for what it is, then you recognize all. Oh, the first fetter is actually up to me to fix. I'm not going to get anybody else to do it. And so these things work in stages. These are the various insights that we have. The real insight is as to who I am and who I am not. Now, the really important and the best question to ask is not who am I, but to ask the question who I am not. 
And a better way of even looking at that is to instead of looking at who I am or who I am not is to look at is this dukkha or is this not? That's what we really look at that I'm not important here. The I shows up after the dukkha or when the dukkha shows up. But when there's no dukkha, there's no I. So this is that first fetter. So the second fetter is our grasping and clinging and wanting and desires that are associated with our, our location and our external world, both conceptually and real. And then the third fetter, the fetter of the eradication of doubt, is our desire, lust, and thirst for information. We think we got to know it all in order to get anywhere. The more we know, the better. Okay, knowledge is power. Secrets are important. You don't want to let this out. All of that kind of stuff. Okay, so that's the third better. But when we recognize that we can be comfortable without knowing everything, all we need to know is enough. What do I need to know? How my own mind works. And that's all I really need to know. I don't need to know much of anything else. I don't have to read any books or go to any plays or travel anywhere. All I need is to know and to remember then I'm okay right now. So that whole idea of thirst for knowledge, and this is what Western Buddhism is all based upon, is based upon the thirst for knowledge. True. And a little dabble, do you? Just enough. So when you have the right knowledge, that doesn't mean you have a whole library of stuff. You just got the one page that you need. Everything you need to know can be written down on one page. And we don't need all of that other stuff. So these are the three fetters. When one comes to the point that they recognize that they've got enough knowledge, they don't need any more. When one comes to the point that they've got enough from the world, they don't need any more. And when they've got uh, the knowledge of, I've had it up to here with me, and I don't need any of that anymore, and I'm satisfied without it. So when I become to a state of satisfaction without me and trying to protect me, when I'm satisfied with not trying to get anything from the world, and when I'm satisfied with not trying to get anything out of knowledge to get more so that I know how to do it, I've got everything I need. That is actually when one is in that state, in the moment, they're a soda pie, which I imagine all three of you are right now. That's all there is to it. Not much there. Sotapan is not an attainment, it's a state of mind. And when one is in that state of mind, one is really satisfied. One is eager to hear more of the Dhamma. We're satisfied with what we've got, but we like to hear the same little old things over and over and over again. Yes, Scott. So, um, if that's soda pond, then what's our hot? The stages from there to our hot, you see, the soda pond is uh, uh, on top of the game of looking for dukkha in order to eliminate it. So uh, let us say this pre soda pond phase was all the heavy duty practice that needed to be done which is also the same practice that needs to get into the state of Sotapan, or excuse me, state first jhana, because when one is in first jhana, they are in the state of Sotapan. 
almost by definition, but certainly by logic. So when you're in that state, that means that you've already accomplished something because you've been practicing well. So the practice is there. Once we're in the state of the Sotapanna, then the state of first jhana, now the work to do is to perform well this music that we've learned. Okay. And when we've learned that music so well that it's a dance, that's the Arahat. The Arahat is the one who doesn't have to work at performing anymore. In other words, he's gotten uh, through wisdom so far from Dukkha that he can dance all over the place without any fear of stepping in a cow pie. He's got to feel pretty well cleaned out now. And what has he got cleaned out? Greed and ill will that are still part of the soda ponds awareness system because he's got to avoid those things. And so that's what he's going to be working on. And the working on that is to first off is to uh, to hone them down and then to polish them off. And that's the state of uh, uh, Sotagami and Anagami. Okay. And then the five higher fetters are what we deal with all along. A lot of people think that, oh, I don't even deal with the higher five fetters until I've already reached the state of uh, anagami. Now, what the state of anagami means is, is that we can, in fact, not show it on the outside, that uh, that all of the rupa stuff, all the grasping and the clinging that other people do, you can see that. But the anagami is the one who can keep it inside in the sense that he doesn't let it manifest itself into bodily actions. He's that on top of his game. It doesn't show. But he still has to deal with that stuff. Okay, so the dealing with that stuff all along is the same thing. And that is basically from in able to get into the state of sotapan, one has to be in that moment in a state of fearlessness. Ultimately, we deal with our fear of death. This is what the uh, the point of um, a rupa raga and rupa raga are all about: is to being satisfied with we're going to die, and be satisfied with I ain't dead yet. That's the hard part, because we could be satisfied I ain't dead yet, but we can't be satisfied with the thought of yes, I will be dead soon. Okay. So uh, these are the higher things, but we deal with those from the very beginning anyway. It's just the Arahat is so skilled with dealing with uh, Dukkha and skilled with uh, uh, dealing with his own greed and dealing with his own ill will. But he's going now down to that level of dealing specifically. An example of that would be competition. That even the Anagamis will compete with each other. But the Arahat, he doesn't compete at all. He doesn't need to compete because he's already know that when he competes, he's going to set it up to win, and he's going to win the game every time. That the Arahat <laughs> sets his own rules, and so he always wins that game. Never mind what rules that you're playing when you play the game with me. You're playing by your own set of rules, but the Arahat sets <laughs> his own rules, and the, and the only rule he has is, I've already won this game. Now it's just a game to play. <laughs> non-competition non-competing that's where the arahat comes to shine if he doesn't compete 
He may come across as a ferocious lion that you can't deal with to the point that you call him a bully. And, the, and that was, I mean, the Buddha was a lion. He was a bull. You didn't mess with him because he was right and he knew it. He was strong like that. So that's the Arahat. The Arahat is someone who is really tough. You can't get anywhere with them. They do not play your game. They don't play along with it. And so that's an example of uh, uh, Arahats in action. Good example, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. <laughs> Basically, half of the army was at Watsu and Mok insisting that he get on this helicopter to take him back to hospital. And by the way, this is a king's helicopter. And Bhikkhu Buddhadasa would not go to Bangkok to die. He says, I'm going to die right here. Now, that's the bull. To not get on the king's helicopter. <laughs> the king is in the helicopter. The king of Thailand is in the helicopter. The bigger booted is just, I don't want it. <laughs> if Air Force One or uh, uh, Marine One came landed in your front yard and says, you come with me, boy, are you going to go with him? You better believe you'd go with him. You'd be going at great reputation. Bigger booted says, oh, I'm not having any of it. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, you're eating with your hand raised. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's uh, doing two things at once there. <laughs> um, so I noticed, you know, you mentioned this earlier. A lot of the fetters are highly interconnected. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, um, you have a personality view, the first fetter. But then on the eighth, you have conceit. And it seems to me that if you would were to get rid of personality view, you would also get rid of conceit at the same time. So why are those different fetters and what's the relationship between them? The difference would be tree between the tree and the stump. That a tree is a tree with the tree and the stump, but you could cut and cut down the tree, but you leave the stump. And if that stump is there and you leave it alone, that stump's going to grow back a new tree. Okay. So, the the soda pond is out there tree cutting and the uh, arahat is stump removal. Does so, that make sense? <laughs> sure. So conceit then would be the root of personality view. Yes, exactly. I am is the seed of the personality view. I am, and how do I prove I am is by proving what I am not or making a competition. I'm better than you are, or I'm less than you are. So or what I'm about you are? Yeah. So uh, restlessness comes before conceit, or at the after conceit, you know, I guess. But if you're, you're taking in a list, don't take a list as a permanent reason to make that as an order of things. Sometimes mm -hmm. you have an issue of conceit. Sometimes you have an issue of fear. Sometimes you have an issue of restlessness. Sometimes you have an issue of uh, doubt and worry and, and ignorance. And these things come and go. Don't put them in a rank order. That, that, in fact, after the soda pond gets rid of those first three fetters, by the way, those first three fetters are dealing with knowledge. 
knowledge of what I am not, what the world is not, and what knowledge is not. Okay, once we learn those things, then we can really see dukkha clearly. And that's the job of the Sotapan, is to see these two kinds of dukkha. What kind of dukkhas are there? It's the greed and the ill will going right back to the second noble truth. I mean, this is an easy part, except that now the Sotapan, in the moment of he's a Sotapan, does not have that ignorance component because he has those first three fetters of knowledge wired. So now he can actually see dukkha. And he can see ill will and the greed. As he begins to see that, we can begin to see the underlying tendencies. In fact, the Western people have been able to see these fetters in psychology, but they haven't been able to do much about it. But it's not a good idea to say, oh, well, restlessness is a bigger or more important fetter than ignorance. That in fact, that first, that third, excuse me, the third fetter of the removal of doubt ultimately is the tenth better in the sense in the sense of ignorance that you're you're not going to know everything you're just not going to know things and that's okay i could be very happy i could be a tree squirrel and be very happy as a tree squirrel i do not have to be a gorilla i can be happy as a tree squirrel and just because the squirrel knows about gorillas doesn't mean he's got to become one so that's an example of it. That that knowledge is is that the knowledge we have is good enough. And so, in a way, that third fetter and that tenth fetter are interrelated deeply. One's a tree, and the other one's a stump. Yeah. So why are they normally taught in this progression then instead of because the Buddha taught them in that procession and gosh, we can't make an it or an inch or a scratch or a twiddle or anything different than what the Buddha said. Otherwise, we'll roast in hell for it. You know the Dhamma and the Dhamma. (laughs) (laughs) And besides that, Westerners are taught to do things in uh, list order, ranking order. The Buddha didn't rank them in any particular order. He just listed them all. Hmm. And then, in fact, many things are listed in different two different suttas in a different order because the order doesn't matter. Hmm. I met someone once that claimed that he was enlightened because he had gone through the ten fetters one by one and just went up the, the whole list and he did this very systematic thing mm-hmm. and um it was you know it, it was interesting i i don't think he was telling the truth but i thought it was interesting well he if- probably was telling the truth in the sense that he did go through the fetter systematically but when he was saying i am an arahat in that moment he wasn't right <laughs> he might have been an arahat once in a moment or two <laughs> when he was looking at the fetters, but when he's bragging to you, he's not. Right, well, you know, it was funny because on the podcast today, it was two people who had been, um, who had been uh, claimed to have been Erhats, and one of them was talking the other the whole time, and the other was only quietly getting in a comment every now and then. And I could tell that the real Erhat was the one quietly getting the comment in. <laughs> that was how I felt about that conversation. You know, um, 
I've been accused of being too talkative also. Well, you can only know if someone's not an arhat if you're already an arhat. You have to be an arhat to know if someone's an arhat or not. Ah, guess what? Nobody knows the mind of anyone else. That in fact, um, Achan Po was quite clear about that with me. In the sense of number one, you do not know what's in the mind of another person. If you observe carefully, you could see behavior, but know that that's all you could see is behavior. You do not know. And in fact, they may be in a very skilled liar or they may be in such a habit of lying that they don't even bother to re uh, recollect whether they're lying or not. They just spout off whatever they want to say. Good example of that is Donald Trump. He doesn't care about what the truth is. He's only trying to protect himself. OK, so we don't really know what's in the mind of another person by what they say or what they do. <gasps> wow. Well, that's all we've got to go with. What they say and what they do. What we can say is, is that they we can observe behavior and words that they use to indicate they are not what they claim to be. In other words, it's really, really hard for someone to get away with be calling himself an Arahat on the day that he robbed a bank. But in art, but like you were saying, an Arhat is not playing the competitions of who's an Arhat, who's not an Arhat, <laughs> right? Exactly. Doesn't matter. It's just a word. Like, Does good for you, man. You're an Pardon? <laughs> like if someone tells you you're they're an arhat, you could congratulations, like good for them. Mm-hmm. It there's no there's no reason to say, oh no, this person, I don't think he's an arhat. You didn't say that right. Uh huh. You know, exactly so. That's a that's a competition, right? Exactly. All right. Uh, but people who will brag that they're an Arahat, that's a competition. They're bragging. They're saying, right, I right, am right. this. Agreed. And generally, Arahats, Arahats just are bulls. They don't pretend to be and they don't claim to be. They just do it. Um. An example would be, oh, Damarato, do you really claim that you have first jhana? The answer is no, I don't claim anything. Why should you claim anything? But if you want to know about first jhana, listen. <laughs> Teach you the ingredients so that you can do it yourself. And then when you're in first jhana, you won't worry about who else is in first jhana or not. <laughs> So, yeah, that's the whole idea is, is that who am I and what am I uh, is kind of given up in two stages. One is that personality view, and then eventually through the competition, we don't compete with anybody anymore. There's no reason to compete. Now, there's another way of looking at Arahat that kind of lets everybody off the hook. <laughs> and that is the, de the definition that the Buddha used for the word Arahat. Not the one that very heavy-duty uh, scholarly monks in Theravada tradition will use. 
because they will use the definition of these five higher fetters. But the actual definition of the word arahat in the time of the Buddha, the word that he borrowed to use was an arahat is one who is worthy of praise and worthy of gifts. Worthy of honor, worthy of gifts. Sometimes politicians are like that. In fact, that's part of the reason why uh, diplomats and kings give each other gifts is to show that I appreciate you and I think that you are worthy of gifts and I don't even care what you do with my gift. So uh, when we give people a gift, that means that we assume that they're worthy of that gift. So if you use the word arahat like that and anybody who claims that they're an arahat, all they're really claiming is that they're worthy of respect and worthy of gifts. Well, everybody's worthy of respect and worthy of gifts from time to time. What's the point? There's no big deal about it. But in fact, the time when each one of us is most worthy of gifts and most worthy of respect is when in that moment we are an arahat. When we're not competing with that person who is giving it the gift. Oh, that gift's not good enough. I want better gifts than this. No, you receive the gifts graciously. Here's an example of that. I was actually at Amaravati. No, excuse me. This was at Abayagiri. Words are backwards. One in California. Uh, and that a Thai man came into the kitchen angry. And he started storming through the kitchen. And one of the things he found on the bottle out of the and he put it on the table angrily. And it was a bottle of uh, soy sauce that had a, had a picture of a fish on it. And then he found a box of Tostosties. I remember it specifically because this box of Tostosties had a great big picture of a morning chicken on it. And so he grabbed that and he put it on the table. And he was fuming in high-speed time. I didn't understand. But after he left, what had happened was is that he went in to give uh, donations to the, uh, to the temple. And the only monk who was in uh, around at that time was a junior monk. And when this guy was there presenting all of his gifts, the monk was so stupid as to say, oh, we're vegetarians here. We don't eat this stuff. And that monk, that stupid monk, lost that donation and that man's heart. And some of the Thai women who we were talking about, I mean, this caused a big kerfuffle after that Thai man left. And uh, one of them says, well, I would have fed it to the cat. Cats like to eat it. We got a cat here. We don't, <laughs> you, don't re you don't reject gifts, right? So when that monk rejected that gift, that was proof positive that he was not acting according to the plan. He was being selfish. He was thinking of it only from his perspective and what this guy is going to do for me. Rather than looking at it, no, the real issue is that you want this guy to feel really good and warm and fuzzy because he's donating and giving gifts, and the gift itself is not important. What's important is, is that the gift is well-received. And so one who is worthy of a gift is one who will receive it well, whether he likes the gift or not. 
So that's an aspect then of Arahat. These are just ordinary things. I mean, an Arahat's not some dude that sits on the top shelf of your uh, statue uh, bookcase. It's just an ordinary state of mind that people are in from time to time. The question is, can you keep coming back to that state consistently just when you need it most? Just when you're about to receive a gift, that's when you need to be gracious in receiving gifts. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And a guy can do that with his wife when she serves supper. He can say, wow, I'm so glad that you did this for us. Thank you so much for taking care of me. So that's the attitude of the Arahat, is being gracious and grateful for being able to receive the gifts. That's what he makes him worthy of the gifts. And that's what makes him worthy of respect. It's because he's respectable in that moment. Robert, your hand is still waving. And you're still eating. I, I just keep getting, no, I'm done with the eating. Now it's the chewing gum time. So um, <laughs> the next phase of that. Well, it was actually funny because right as you said that, it was right after I thanked Sandra very much for the dinner she made me. So that was why I was. I know. So, I saw your arm wave in the air. I saw yeah. you. I saw so that. That was great. But so thank your you. comment about. <laughs> thank you. Um, so your comment, I appreciate the thank you. Very nice. Of you. Um, <laughs> um, but. Um, uh, so your point about not uh, not knowing what's in someone else's mind. Um, now, what about, you know, the phenomenon of certain people giving you certain feelings? So and when you mentioned that, it actually made me think of the time I saw John Poe myself at Wat Swan Moak many years ago. And I felt he brought a great feeling of presence and calm. You know, true equanimity is just really in the moment. You know, and people that see, you know various you know spiritual leaders you know and you know in person often report this kind of thing like seeing the dalai lama like very joyful everyone is happy you know or you can have the reverse where if you see a criminal in the street and they look very threatening there's there can be the sensation of fear you know or you're at a violent you know event of some kind and there can be this tension mm -hmm. so what are your thoughts on these feelings that people are able to, that others receive from other people, and how it can seem so spontaneous in certain moments, such as, you know, talking to, like, you give people a lot of joy over Skype and YouTube, right? Which is, I think, one reason people love talking with you, right, is because of that hit of joy, right? So, mm -hmm. although you might not be able to read the other person's mind, you can def definitely get a certain feeling, you know, from that person. So well, what are your thoughts on Well, you're talking about behavior and activity and words and language, which is how we convey the joy. Achan Po is sitting there with all of his joy. He's just not conveying it to you. You have to pick it up on a more subtle level. Sure. But in fact, he can, when he's speaking to, in Thai, and this also part of that is the language barrier. When he's speaking in Thai, he can be quite uh, animated. Hmm. Sure. He, yeah, he, he was speaking in English and he was very um, uh, calm. You know, he was very, um, he didn't seem too animated to me. 
Mm-hmm. Well, animation is the way that joy is expressed. And I've gotten a lot of joy from my Chan Po. Yeah. He was not always calm. He played games. <laughs> he would very calmly stand outside my kuti just to see how long, I guess, it took for me to recognize that he was there. He was in, he was in my location. He was in my locale. And I wasn't paying attention to it. And I started paying more attention to what's going on. And now I can pay attention to where I know somebody's coming in the yard before the dogs do. I'm a better dog than the dogs are. (laughs) I'm doing their job for them. And sometimes they win. But in fact, I don't pay much attention to the dogs that come in. I'm always doing it for the humans, but they do it for the humans and the dogs. And there can be a dog behind me over here and they'll start barking and go get it. And I'll find out what it is later. So they've got acuities that I don't have. I'm more attuned to humans. And so the dogs can come up and I won't know it, but the dogs do. But when a human comes in, I probably know it before the dogs do. And that's their job is to know what's going on. They're territorial like that. And so having that mind open, and that's one of the things that I got training from my Chan Po that I can't really give you. I can't sneak into your bedroom and kick your bed and, and sneak out. But I can do that with Kitty. I play games with Kitty. Because I can to wake her up. And our Chan Po played wake up games. I remember several times he would just walk right past me. I would be out in the open, whatever's happening, I'm paying attention. And and I began to look to see if I am in an open space. Where is Achan Po? (laughs) Because if I'm not aware of where he is, he's going to get me before I get him. And that actually, that whole mentality harked back to when I was in high school I had another friend who he and I were really into motorbikes and and what we were it's a small town in the south, no dealers or anything like that, but we do it together. And one of the things that Randy taught me was police. You gotta know where they are before they see you, you see them. You keep your guy open, you keep your guard open, wherever you are, you gotta see the cops before you they see you. Why? Because we're out there breaking the law left, right, and center. And all we have to do is make sure that the cops are not seeing us. So that's a new kind of awareness that I developed in high school. And then I recognized I need to do that in a different way. Because I was doing it in an unwholesome way when I was doing it with the cops. But now it's still a good idea. If you're out driving and not breaking any laws, it's still better that you know where the cops are before they know where you are. Because if you know the cops are hiding behind that thing up there, then when you pass by that thing, you're not going to be breaking any laws. Well, if we take that into permanent everything, then we got to know where our Po is. We got to know where the cops are. We got to know where everything is. You got to keep your eye open and looking around. 
And so that, that, that he was teaching me, he would walk up behind me and he'd say a, a short sentence and they were a variety, but he had some topics that he would use. One that he would come and just say the word ta-ta-ta and then walk away. In fact, I had to, where is he? You know, where did that word, I knew it was his voice, but where is he? Because he would just pass by. Another one that he would say in English, he would say, not sure which is actually the teaching of both the third and that 10th fetter that we were talking about is be comfortable with not knowing everything that's happening. Just keep watching, but be comfortable that you can see rather than worried about what you can't see. To be comfortable with the fact that you're not going to see very much, but in fact, the best thing that we can say is of all of the 100% things that are available sensory to us, an arahat will see about 10%, and most humans are down at about zero to 1%, and a sotapan is up to about 2%. But nobody is going to go over 10%. There's just so much happening all the time that we're just not going to catch it all. But the point is, is that the more input that we have, the higher the, uh, that ratio will be. And when we're burning our own mind and thinking about our own mind, we're not taking any sensory input. That's why we're down to the one or uh, zero percent level. You're just not paying attention to what's going on. And so when Achan Po would come, I would know it. I could turn and smile at him and then he wouldn't have anything to say. <laughs> but if he did not get my attention before he arrived, then he would uh, uh, say something like "not sure" or "ta ta ta" or something like that, <laughs> and he'd be and he'd be inches away. I mean, he didn't do this ten feet away. Monks don't go out in public. I mean, if I um, anyway, yeah, ten feet's too much. Two, three, four, five feet. That's all. And so, if, if somebody comes within five feet of you, do you know it? Or can somebody sneak up on you? That's that's another game that you can play that has to do with the with walking meditation. So at one point in time, I turned that around with Ajahn Po. Can I sneak up on Ajahn Po? The answer is, is yes, I can if I do it correctly. But I've got to catch him doing something like drinking water or talking to somebody. But if he's just sitting there, I can't come within 10 or 20 feet without him knowing I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> and that then that to me sometimes uh-huh so this Where is a game I, that you right uh, that tam she's she constantly just gets really surprised like plachai or whatever like that i'm just standing right beside her in fact her face is like this her head is here and my face is here and i don't touch her with her body but all she has to look is look that much out of the lens of the eye and then my face is right on her <laughs> Because <laughs> when people are not aware, it's very easy for someone who is quiet just to walk right up to them, sneak right up on them. And that terrifies them sometimes. I've done that to Thai people and wished I hadn't because <laughs> they thought it was a, a ghost or a pee. In fact, this is where the whole idea of flying monks come from. It's because a good monk can sneak right up on you and you don't even know he's there. <laughs> In that case, it takes one to know one. Erhard's having a hard time, picking, uh, let us say, sneaking up on another Erhard. But this is also the basic Zen training, and it's also martial arts training. 
It doesn't matter how much martial arts you have. If somebody's able to sneak up on you from behind and get you from behind, you're in trouble no matter what martial arts you have. So part of the real martial arts training is to be aware of your environment. Don't let anything happen within the, your location without you knowing it's there. Something big like a human being coming. So that's part of the practice and that's part of that wakefulness and uh, uh, being in the present moment or being in senses rather than thinking about something. So I think that this is a good time to stop. We've already lost David and a couple of other guys. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Do you have yeah, anything, Scott? Before before we leave, do you have any last comments, Scott? Um, it's been nice, you know. It was beautiful, beautiful talk. I had some nice, uh, nice experiences, some nice insights. <laughs> um, just a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Well, we'll see you next time, Robert. Right. Thank you so much. You and sure. I are dancing a dance together, I can tell. <laughs> you know just the right questions to ask. <laughs> Thanks so much. Let's do, my, let's my do 111 a little bit deeper next time, okay? That sounds great. All right. See you guys. Bye, Robert. Cheers. Bye. Take care. Good to meet you, Scott.